by Chemistry. Hi, I'm Lizzie from the Royal Society of Chemistry, and I'm here to bring you a special bonus episode of the first series of our podcast brought to you by Chemistry, in which we've discussed all things plastics. Here with me is Dr. Alexander Hall, Research Fellow at the University of Birmingham, to tell us a little bit about the history of plastics, the way that plastics have been viewed by society, and how those views have evolved since their invention. Alex, can you just describe a little bit about what your current role is? Yes, uh, thanks, Lizzie. Um, So I'm a historian of science uh, by training, but um, I've often worked in interdisciplinary areas. Um, And so I work a lot on the role of science in society, um, how science's position in society has changed over time and how the media often plays a role in the communication of science in society. And so as part of that, um, I've become very interested through the plastics network at Birmingham University uh, in in how plastics have sort of changed uh, in modern society and how um, something that's so ubiquitous and everywhere in our society, kind of how how did that position emerge really, is, is what my research is currently interested in. Okay, and you mentioned the Birmingham Plastics Network. Could you just tell us a little bit more about what that is? Yeah, so the Birmingham Plastics Network is an attempt to really bring together um, scholars working on all kinds of from all kinds of disciplines on plastics. So it's kind of headed by um, uh, Professor Andrew Dove, and um, at its core has you know physical chemists uh, and others working directly on on things like renewable, biodegradable plastics, all of these kind of areas that you might expect. But then is an attempt to bridge across all the different uh, disciplines at the university and bring in economists, historians, artists, and um, all kinds of people who are already working on plastic in some regard, but might uh, quite often sort of you know be working in completely different buildings and not even aware of each other's work. So it's an attempt to try and coalesce all that expertise into one and, and hopefully come out with some in, uh, you know, better and stronger at the other side of that collaboration. Okay, so in your role as a historian of science, what do you bring to the mix? Um, hopefully, what I bring is um, not just a kind of a, a history of, of the kind of technologies and materials and uh, the material science that's come through in, in the developments of plastics, but much more a, a kind of an interface between those kind of developments and then the sort of what happens in everyday life and society. Um, and as I mentioned, my, my kind of interest is, is often in the popular media. Um, so I'm kind of at the moment really just trying to find all these weird and wonderful places that you find plastics being mentioned that you might not think of and then starting to untangle how they might affect people's perception and opinion of these products and their use of them. So, you know, for example, I have um, been looking at uh, old sci-fi. So going through, Uh, BBC television from the 70s and trying to find not just references to plastic but also episodes and and examples where plastics were kind of central to plot lines and that's often um, with new you know visions of the future for example plastics often featured in uh, in earlier decades. That's really interesting so part of your job is is watching old tv shows how do you go about doing this type of research practically? Um, yeah, for part of my job, yeah, and it's it's quite exciting, and especially in this um, first phase of any research in this area, and currently in f- for looking at plastics in in popular culture, um, you get to you know uh, where there are recordings, watch old television, radio. Um, sometimes there's not. You might uh, have to rely on the scripts, or or a minimum route around in in archives um, and find uh, kind of uh, outlines of these shows. Um, as the work goes on, you know, sometimes it can get a little bit more repetitive because, for example, you know, if I'm doing a close reading of, of, a, of a 
show or something like that, it might take three, four full watchings of the whole series to analyze really um, in detail. But what I'm interested in there is not just the kind of the show that's been left, but looking at the production decisions, uh, who was feeding into that, were they using scientific advisors? Um, depending on the context, were they using paid promotions, for example? That's something else that comes up with plastics. Not so much when you're looking maybe at BBC stuff in the UK, because that's not as common, but definitely in North America, that's that's quite common, that there would be segments directly sponsored by companies um, making new products. And, and um, you know, across the 20th century, that was quite often uh, chemical companies making plastic products. Um, so those kind of contextual things as well with them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite uh, exciting when you kind of uncover um, a show or a series that's kind of got these kind of central themes that you might not have expected it to. And so what can you tell us from your research so far about how um, the way plastic is portrayed in popular culture has changed over the decades? Yeah, I guess it's sort of, if we take it in a very general sense, we kind of have, I'm interested in sort of narratives around science, like how, how does how do we get the, these technologies and sciences over to the masses? And often that's by very simple narratives. And we sort of have these phases of um, kind of early to mid 20th century of, of kind of plastic utopia, as it were, as, as plastic as the new thing that can really solve a lot of problems. Um, a lot of that marketing in the, in the middle of the 20th century was centered around the domestic spaces, around the home, um, ar around plastic as this product that could save people time save housewives time, particularly in the 1940s and 50s, it was marketed as. And then we can kind of see a shift um, alongside the kind of counterculture movements and environmental movements of the late 60s and early 1970s. So by the mid-1970s, we start to see a few more um, kind of narratives in popular uh, culture around kind of questioning the role of plastic in some spaces. So we've had um, the first um, scientific studies starting to look at, you know, problems with plastic that might be you know hormone disruption those kind of things and then that starts to trickle through into popular culture so there's um a series called a sci-fi series called doom watch for example from the 1970s um been fascinated with this for a while and it's got lots of environmental themes in it and it's from the early 1970s so it's very interesting because it's one of the first times a mass audience in the uk would have heard a lot of these issues and they've got a whole episode called the plastic eaters and it's, um, it's about an escaped uh, biological weapon, basically, that, that decomposes plastic. And it, it, it uh, gets exposed on a plane, on a flight. And, uh, you know, all of the cabin is all melting down and sort of this very dystopian vision of our over-reliance on plastic. And that's sort of by the 1972, 1973, I think, the episode aired. Um, and then we can kind of see the change in discourse with plastic. And I sort of say that the third major narrative is really kind of what most listeners will be familiar with today, which is kind of around the problems with plastic waste specifically. So not necessarily um, plastic as a product being a problem, but kind of a, the, the misuse or, or lack of management of plastic waste streams. And I guess the kind of moment there that people might be familiar with is kind of um, Blue Planet um, series on the BBC and the kind of its exposure to a very wide audience of the issues of, of waste in the ocean. Um, but I guess alongside that, that kind of framing, we see the emergence of, of things like um, biodegradable plastics. So that's kind of come with that, that wave as well. So they're probably the kind of three main points we can kind of see across the 20th century. 
That's amazing. So are you saying that before that episode of Doomwatch in the early 70s, a lot of people might not have come across any negative association with plastic? I, th- I think individual groups and communities definitely had, um, you know, and there had been uh, individual cases. And I think there's been, there was plenty of scientific studies starting to look at plastic and, and on the flip of those studies, plastic regulation um, and standards. So it wasn't that, that no one had, but at a kind of mass level where you're talking about, um, you know, a show like Doomwatch getting millions and millions of viewers um, on a primetime slot on television, that was kind of the first time that it reached into the sort of the every person's home, as it were, I think, in that kind of framing. Um, and quite often the Doomwatch format was, it wasn't necessarily completely dystopian. It was that there was a solution to these problems. And the solution usually came from the scientists in the show. Um, so it, it wasn't a kind of complete rejection of modernity or anything like that. It was it was much more that it was the, um, you know, the out of control use of these products. And, and quite often the demure British scientists would come in with a solution and solve the day. That was the sort of general format. That's interesting. So I, I think my understanding is that in those decades, um, science was seen as this very positive, exciting, progressive thing. Whereas um, nowadays, there's obviously that as well. But there's also this kind of fear that kind of what have we done, the impacts of some of our scientific developments. Um, is there a point at which um, public attitudes actually started to shift and public behaviours actually start to shift in response to media portraying plastic more negatively yeah i think i think we can kind of start to see the the sort of tender shoots of that in the 1990s um we see more awareness around specific types of plastic so things like single-use plastic and we start to see um campaigns and awareness around you know shopping bags for example Um, And so we can kind of see things that intersect quite closely with people's lives. That's kind of bound up in a wider movement of kind of um, sustainability, really. So sort of a shift from just an environmental framing of issues to a kind of more social understanding of sustainability that includes communities, that includes economics as well. Um, So we can kind of see that then that people start responding. Um, Action, though, is often patchy, Um, you know, simple actions can happen quite quickly others uh, take decades and so and that that's where you get this kind of interface with regulations as well so um you know in the uk for example we didn't ban uh, or, or restrict or regulate uh, plastic shopping bags as, as quickly as some other uh, places so other parts of the eu for example did that sooner and so their use dropped markedly simply from you know regulation rather than necessary personal choice and do you think media is important in terms of how people interact with certain products and do you think media is important in terms of um what regulations introduced and how government sees materials and sustainability issues yeah i think so definitely and and to go back to that example from before the the blue planet series with david attenborough it can be hugely important because that's you know for anyone with um, who's interested in environmental issues who knows much about plastic the message at the heart of the episode that got so much media attention wasn't particularly new. Um, I, you know, I think, I think many of your listeners will have been well aware of it already. Um, but the ability of that platform to cut through, um, to, to package it in a way that previous attempts hadn't been able to, 
to reach parts of society that hadn't heard that message before about plastic waste in the ocean um, showed what the, the power is there. And that's, you know, partly the visual uh, language used, um, but also partly the trust that a figure like David Attenborough built up over a career. He's not some fresh faced nobody coming to tell you this is an issue. Um, he's someone that people have allowed into their lounges for decades. Uh, and so that cut through. So I think the media does have a huge role in this. And um, where it gets harder is ultimately to get those messages across, you have to reduce complexity. Um, you know, if you want to cut through to a wide segment of society, it has to be a simple message. Um, and when there's a simple thing like plastic, you know, plastic waste in the oceans, um, and generally nearly everyone can agree that that's a problem, um, it's, it's quite simple. But in other areas around plastics in society, it's quite complex what we need to do. You know, simply getting rid of plastic isn't an option in some sectors and areas. Um, it is quite simply the best product uh, that we have and miles ahead of the other alternatives. So there, that's where it gets harder for the media because often um, things get reduced to sort of slogans or, or top headlines. This is something I was going to ask you, actually, is that obviously today a lot of us see plastic as as just a nuisance and it might be better if it doesn't didn't exist but obviously it was invented for a reason are you able to, able to tell me a bit more about the history of when plastic started and why and what people thought it was going to solve yeah there's a few different things because you know there's you know it's a, a very plastic term it covers a lot of products um so ultimately in the late 19th century we had a lot of what we might think of as sort of natural plastics. We had materials similar to plastics made out of natural fibers. So we had things made out of cellulite. We had things made out of shellac and other, other products like that. Um, um, they were malleable, they were moldable. That was their kind of main aim of the scientists behind them. Um, in the early 20th century, I guess the most famous we get is Leo Bakerland's uh, development of Bakelite. Um, and, and this, you know, has this increased uh, malleability to be molded um, and it's a good insulator and it has good longevity. And, and sort of as the research in the early 20th century, we get uh, the development of different plastics branching quite quickly and the polymer science behind it really expanding. We get a lot of different properties for different plastics that are developed, but ultimately the main things that remain are that malleability and longevity. But quite quickly, the uh, cost price of producing these materials also drops very quickly. And so you get this kind of inverse thing where the earliest products are being used because of their longevity, but because the cost drops so quickly, quite quickly they get starting applied to cheap things that don't need longevity. I mean, the plastic bag perhaps being the most ubiquitous one. So we've developed a material that has this huge uh, lifespan, um, but its cost price means it's great to be used for these other roles where it's being used in single use settings. Um, so you kind of have this, this flip as it develops and they proliferate. Most of the, the modern plastics people would be sort of familiar with from their childhood and stuff, um, you know, have been around for, for a large portion of the 20th century. And then until we get to kind of more recent decades where we're sort of starting to really see the genuine ingress of, of biodegradable plastics, um, of, of new forms uh, of the material. Oh, that's really interesting. So it was invented for a specific purpose, but you're saying that because it was so cheap and easy to produce, it's now being used way beyond its extent, intended purpose. Yes, I think so. And I mean, it's it's ultimately um, a, a material that lots of different companies patented their own, mm. their own polymer research, you know, so they developed 
aligned. So we get, you know, things like modern fibers like nylon developed by DuPont, which relies on similar polymer science. Um, so ultimately you can have a lot of these that are sort of very specifically developed out of the same area of polymer science. So when it comes to how plastic is viewed today, um, you were saying obviously the easiest message to get across is simple ones, which seems like the main message that's coming across is plastics equals bad, um, which I think as we've discussed is maybe a bit um, of an oversimplification. Do you think that there's a way to um, explain to people, people who maybe are just going about their daily lives, don't necessarily have a specific research interest in this, is there a way of getting across to people the nuances of plastic when it is and isn't appropriate to use, um, when other materials would be better and when other materials would be worse? Or is this just going to be too difficult to communicate? No, I think I think on the whole, I think um, we shouldn't really underestimate the appetite out there at the moment. Um, and I think that on the whole, questioning any product that you bring into your home or your life or your purchase, um, questioning how that's made and where it's come from is a positive thing, whatever the product. Um, and I think that's where then um, hopefully, you know, manufacturers um, um, and brands can sort of reflect and think about their own product and supply chain themselves. And sometimes the solution is to keep things in plastic. If we're thinking about household products, you know, we see things, but we see other changes made from this kind of pressure from consumers. So if we take something like a detergent liquid in a household, many have still decided to produce them in plastic. Even some of the biggest eco brands in that sector are still produced in plastic bottles. But what they've done is concentrated the formulas um, so that they can come in smaller bottles or they've um, changed the shape of the packaging. So there's less transport um, carbon emissions associated with the transport. So I think, and a lot of that comes from consumer pressure. So I think it's, you know, a positive thing. What I hope doesn't happen is we don't just necessarily get brands with a knee-jerk reaction, perhaps, you know, implementing a different material without doing a proper, um, you know, cradle-to-grave assessment of, of, the, of the product and the life cycle of the material, because um, we could end up with things with, you know, larger carbon footprints or with more uh, dis waste disposal issues inadvertently just to sort of fit a kind of uh, a kind of brand image. I think, I think it's a positive that people sort of question where those materials and products come from. That's, that's really fascinating to me. I love that. Thank you so much, Alex. This has been fascinating for me. Thanks.